All right. You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews is near the end, not quite the end, but it's going to be near the back of your Bible. We've just finished our study of Colossians, and prior to that, Zechariah. And this morning we began a study of Hebrews that will take us through to the spring. This morning we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not going to give a specific illustration or example of this, but simply trust that I have experienced, and I imagine you have as well, a time when you did not take good advice. A time when somebody recommended to you a way to go or something to do, a certain way to set an anchor, or a certain something that was recommended to you, and you thought, no, I'll pass on that advice. And after the circumstances played out exactly as your counselor said they would, you said, man, gee, I wish I had listened. I wish I had listened. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to avoid for his audience. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of speculation that makes no difference on how we read and understand it. We do know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it comes to us and has long been accepted since the very earliest days of the church as an authoritative book of Scripture. And so it is the Word of God to the church today, though we don't know the author. We can discern who the audience is, though. The audience of the book of Hebrews, as the title suggests, were primarily Jewish, Hebrew, Christians. And in the early days of the Christian church, uh, particularly Jewish believers were under double persecution. They were being persecuted by the Roman government, which did not accept the Christian faith as a legitimate uh, religious practice. You either had to practice emperor worship, or if you were one of those persnickety, um, rebellious people from Jerusalem, you could be Jewish and not be persecuted. And for a long time, followers of Jesus existed under the umbrella of being Jewish Christians. But as they became more and more distinct, and it became more and more clear that no, they were not of the same faith they believed in Jesus, they lost that special protection. So now they were being persecuted by the Roman government, but also being persecuted by their Jewish brothers and sisters who looked upon them as, as traitors, blasphemers, and rebels. And under this intense persecution of, of not being allowed to work, finding it difficult to buy and sell and, and make a living and having their very lives threatened, a number of them were making the reasonable conclusion that, gee, if we just went back to where we were, to our original Jewish faith, all of this would go away and it would be fine. Is it not the same God? 
Does he not speak through the same prophets? Do we not read the same scriptures? And the author of Hebrews hears that, that idea and he says, No. No, you have been given a better and different word. And if you don't listen to this word, it will not go well with you. You will look back with regret. And so he's trying to spare his audience the danger of missing the word of the Lord. The whole letter hammers home the idea that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the whole system of the priests. He's greater than the sacrifice and the temple. He is just plain greater. In these first few verses, he is warning them to listen to God's word that has come to them through Jesus because Jesus is greater even than the prophets. The Old Testament had the prophets, but Jesus is not just another prophet we see in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken by his son. And the warning that he issues throughout the book is that if you give up on that, if you turn away from that and forsake that word, you're missing out on something that you will get nowhere else. And so later on in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Now these words of warning are not just for a group of Christian Jews in, in the first century in the Roman Empire. The words are equally true for us today because we live in a culture and in a world that does not recognize that Jesus is greater than everything. That Jesus is greater than our celebrities. Jesus is greater than our government. Jesus is greater than our fears and our enemies. Jesus is greater than anything else. And if we do not pay careful attention to the word that he has spoken to us, then we miss out on something that we get nowhere else. Because of who Jesus is, we have to be diligent to listen to Him. And listening does not just mean hearing. Listening is responding, obeying. Many voices will speak to you in your life and suggest or even demand that you listen to them. But Jesus is unique. He is distinct and He is greater than any other voice that speaks to you because of His authority, because of His power, and because of His nature. And so as we see in these first verses, one of the reasons that we should listen to Jesus, we listen because of His authority. The word authority doesn't show up in these verses necessarily, but images of authority are very clear. In verse 2, we see that God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. When we think of an heir, we think of someone who will inherit an estate or a property or something like that, and that's true. But in the biblical sense, the word has more than that. After all, what is the inheritance that Christ receives? It says He has been appointed the heir of all things. He inherits everything. It's uh, reminiscent of Psalm 2 which speaks of Jesus in this way. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now I'm an heir. I've inherited some things. When my parents died, I received my dad's leather jacket, which I'm convinced is shrinking around this part somehow. 
I inherited his two swords that he got in Thailand. I inherited a nice chess set and a few other sundry things. That's what I inherited. Jesus is the heir, the Son of God, who inherits the nations. All the nations, all the earth are his possession. And the authority to rule over them. Authority is the right to be obeyed. And Jesus has that authority. He makes the same connection in John chapter 5, speaking of himself. Jesus says, as the Father has life in himself, he is granted to the Son, to me, Jesus says, also to have life in himself. And he has given him, the Son, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. As the Son of God, Jesus has His Father's authority. And that authority makes Him the judge. And that's why it says in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To be seated at the right hand of the king was to be in a position of honor. High honor. The highest honor. It was a position of power. The person at the right hand of the king had authority and could make judgments and could be overruled by no one except the king himself. And that is where Jesus is now. That's where he is right now. He is in a position of exalted authority, ruling as king from the throne of God. Now notice that the author of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus took that seat, that position, after making purification for sins. Jesus died on the cross to remove the stain of sin from us, but once He finished that job, He didn't stay dead. We do not worship a dead Savior. We don't worship a martyr who still is in His grave. We don't worship a Christ who is still on the cross. He is not on the cross and He is not in His tomb. He is alive. Not alive and hidden like some guerrilla rebellion warrior waiting for his rebellion to succeed and then he'll come out of hiding. No, he is alive and he's at the right hand of the Father, enthroned in heaven as king. Rejoice, we sang this morning. Rejoice, the Lord is king. And so people of God, what Jesus has spoken, he has spoken from a seat of authority. You best listen to him. And my kids... Love to tell each other what to do. All kids do this, I'm sure. I remember doing it with my sisters. And I was the oldest, so I was especially bad about it. And kids love telling their siblings what to do. But what they love more than that is when mom or dad tells them to tell their sibling what to do. Hey, go tell your sister to turn off her screens. Oh, the joy in a child's heart to walk in a room and says, Dad says... Do this. I'm not speaking on my own authority is what they're saying. I'm speaking with the authority of the one who sent me. Likewise, Jesus, when he was, began his preaching ministry in Luke 4, says he was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And when you hear preaching, when you hear teaching, it's not advice. It's not Oprah's book club. It's not, here's some things that I have found helpful that I hope are helpful to you as well. No, when the Word of God comes to you, it is, Dad says, Dad says that this is true, and you have to respond to it. We don't come to the Bible for advice. 
We come to God's word seeking instruction. So I want to speak a word first to any who are standing outside the family of God. I want to offer this word of counsel. If you are weighing the claims of Jesus, I want you to understand that they are not intended to be a bit of good advice among many other voices of reason and wisdom and experience. Jesus speaks with authority. And you ignore or disobey His word at your own peril. His claims are true. His promises are trustworthy. His warnings are sincere. And so I urge you to listen now while you still have a chance. And to the church, to the people called by His name, I give you a similar word, that there are circumstances and situations in your life that may cause you to waver or to question the word of Jesus. Incidentally, I would encourage you to Join us for Sunday school today as we talk about skepticism and how skepticism affects us and how the church responds to skepticism. There are books, there are podcasts, there are leaders who will tell you how to live, who will call into question the Word of God, who will will offer plausible alternatives to what God has said is true or right. And none of them, none of them speak with the same authority as Jesus the one who is heir of all things and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to him. We also listen to him not only because of his authority, but because of his power. If you were here a few months ago, I shared with you an illustration about uh, the difference between an authority and power. Well, I have a different illustration on the same idea. The difference between authority and power is this. A number of years ago at at another church where I was pastor, we were having a fall festival. We had games and prizes and bouncy houses and all sorts of wonderful things there on the church property. And at one point, somebody came up uh, to me and said, "Uh, Pastor, there's an alligator on the playground. And my first thought is, there's a child dressed up as an alligator on the playground, which nobody was supposed to be on the playground during our fall festival. And, And they said, no, 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 there's an alligator in our playground. And I went over and looked, and sure enough, there was an alligator on the playground, four and a half feet long. We had the authority to remove that alligator. We had every right to remove it from our property and locate it somewhere else, but we sure didn't have the power to do so. Okay? We had to call upon someone else who had the power to remove it. That's the difference between authority and power. Authority, just because you have the right to be obeyed, doesn't mean you can make things happen. Jesus has the authority that we should listen to, but he also has the power that we should pay attention to. In verse 2, it says, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then in verse 3 it says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now those two ideas might sound familiar if you were here a few months ago when we were in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 16 through 17, we saw that for by Jesus, all things were created, created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. We saw and looked at how Jesus not only created all things, but he keeps them going. The laws of physics exist because Jesus says so. The molecules that make up your body don't scatter into the infinite void because Jesus holds all things together. 
He has the power to make things happen. In his earthly ministry, he commanded storms to cease, and in a moment, they did. He commanded demons to flee, and they did. He commanded bread to multiply, and it did. He commanded dead bodies to live again, and they did. He commanded violations of the laws of physics, and he could do that because he made them. This is what we would expect of the one who created all things. He made the wind, the waves, the demons, the bread, and the bodies. And He upholds them and continues their existence. No one else in the universe can claim that kind of power. Jesus has the kind of power that only God has. So to the fearful believers, the author of Hebrews reminds them that whatever circumstances they face, whatever threats are rising up against them, whose words should they listen to? Why not listen to the word of the one who has the power to control all things? Yes, God spoke through the prophets long ago, he says. And those words have not changed. Every word that the Lord has spoken is true. But now he has spoken through his son. And this son is the one who created the world and keeps it going. Perhaps his words are worth our attention. But it's hard, I know. And I'll be one of the first to admit that the world doesn't always look the way we would expect it to look if Jesus has all the power and is using that power well. We see other powers at work in the world. We see political power. We see military power. We see financial power. We see social power. And it's easy to think that we should align ourselves with these other powers. Because they're the ones that are making things happen in the world today. The author of Hebrews reminds us that no, whatever power they have, it is a temporary thing. Look to the one who has eternal power, who created these things from the beginning and holds them all together. I saw a movie once that had a group of people trying to defeat this this great weapon. And they were having to go through this labyrinthian maze of of trying to find their way to to how to destroy this weapon. And there's a member of their crew that they're just like, why are you even here? Why are you with us? You offer nothing to us. You have no weapon. You are weak. You, You aren't a soldier. You aren't a warrior. And later in the movie, it is revealed, I'm the one that made the weapon. Don't you want to listen to me when I tell you to turn left instead of right? I designed every trap in this building. Listen to me. I know how to get you there. The message here for us is that despite how powerful or wise others may seem, Jesus stands above that. He's on a different level entirely. In Isaiah 46, the Lord says it this way, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Even when things don't happen the way that we think they should, we continue to follow God's way because He is still in control with all the power of the Creator. He has declared the end from the beginning. He said, this is where we're going to go. And I have the power to make sure we get there. God just doesn't say, that's where I want to get you. He says, that's where I'm going to get you. 
And he alone has the power to make that happen. God has declared the end from the beginning. We're in the middle. We're in the middle right now. We need the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham that was described in Romans 4 like this. When God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. This inconceivable thing. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God had made promises that would be fulfilled through Isaac. And when God called Abraham to give up Isaac, Abraham knew that even if he had to give up his son, God had the power to keep his promise to give him a a nation through Isaac. We need that faith that sees that God has the power to do what he's promised. So what he has said, we listen. We listen and obey. We listen because of his authority and we listen because of his power. Lastly, we see that we listen because of his nature. Because every prophet who spoke in God's name spoke with authority saying, thus says the Lord. They had authority. And some of those prophets performed mighty, mighty works displaying the power of God. Elijah even raised the dead. Elisha called out the armies of God to defend God's people. They did powerful, mighty things. But Jesus is far and away unique, because, not just because he has more power or more authority, but because he alone has the nature of God. In verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, Jesus represents God in a way that no one else ever has and that no one else ever will, because he is God. Let's look at how the author of Hebrews says that. First, it says he's the radiance, in verse 3, the radiance of the glory of God. What is the radiance of the sun? Is it something different from the sun? It's not. The radiance of the sun, S-U-N, that's confusing, I'm sorry. The, The sun that shines, the radiance of the sun is the heat and the light of the sun coming into contact with us. It's the sun extending itself to reach other things. That's the radiance of the sun. And Jesus, likewise, is God. Fully God, but God in the form that comes to us, that reaches us, that touches us. God's glory, which we've talked about before, as being uh, showing off and displaying the goodness of God. God's glory is displayed, His goodness is displayed to us in Jesus Christ. Through Him, we get to see and experience the radiance of the glory of God. Who and what God is like. John 14, the disciples, trying to understand what Jesus was saying, Philip says, Lord, just just show us the Father, please. Just show us the Father, and, and that will be enough for us. We'll be happy after that. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not just somewhat like God. Jesus is not just partly God, mostly God. Jesus is the fullness of God in human form, the radiance of the glory of God. When we see Him, we see God. Likewise, in verse 3, it says He's the exact imprint of God's nature. 
In other words, when you see Jesus, you see God. That word imprint, I don't often go to the Greek, but I want to teach you a Greek word today. I think you'll be able to remember it. The imprint, the word imprint in Greek is character. Say that. Character. That's literally the Greek word. That's how it's pronounced. Character. It's the word in Greek that describes uh, characteristics, the nature of something, the imprint of a stamp or the mark of a stamp that you, if you take a stamp, like in old times, how they would seal a document, you'd put some wax on the envelope and then put an official stamp that puts a mark or a, or a character. That's the imprint. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, that God has stamped his imprint on humanity. He has taken on human flesh. And the character that is left behind, that is Jesus. The distinguishing mark. What makes you, you, is your character. And Jesus is the stamp, the mark, the character of God. Way, way back in 1995, which I would have said jokingly, but... Way back in 1995, there were two pop songs that came out in the same year, around the same time, both of which asked theological questions. And I was in my formative musical years at that point, so they really stuck with me. One of them was by a group called Dishwalla, and they sang a song that had the, um, the recurring chorus of, Tell me all your thoughts on God. Tell me all your thoughts on God. Tell me what you think about God, because I'd really like to meet Him. I want to know who God is. Tell me all your thoughts on God. Meanwhile, Joan Osborne sang a song, What If God Was One of Us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. No one calling on the phone except for the Pope, maybe in Rome. Okay, that's really how the song went. But the key difference between those songs is the first one is saying, I just want to know God by hearing your thoughts. I want you to tell me what you think about God. And sadly, that's where many of us and most people in the world learn about God. Just tell me what you think God is. And I can't tell you how many times as I share the gospel with people that I hear them saying, well, I don't think God is like that. Well, I don't think God, well, that's your thoughts on God. I prefer Joan Osborne's question. What if God was one of us? What if he took on human flesh and came and dwelt among us and told us what he was like and showed us how he is? It's not something... That's not to say that everything in the Old Testament was just someone's thoughts on God. All Scripture comes to us from God by the Holy Spirit. And the author of Hebrews is clear that in the past, God spoke. God spoke through the prophets. But with the prophet, while the prophets revealed God truly, they revealed Him truly but not completely. And in Jesus, we see God more clearly than ever before. We don't just have words spoken, but we have God in human form, struggling, forgiving, hurting, crying out, praying. We see the nature of God in action, what it looks like. In John chapter 1, we're told, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. What this means is that in Jesus, we don't just get a message about God. We don't just get thoughts on God. We get God. Which is why in verse 4, the author of Hebrews says, 
that Jesus becoming as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I'm not going to talk too much about that right now because next week the passage is all about the angels. We're going to talk about how Jesus is so much better than the angels. But suffice to say for now, don't think of Jesus like an angel or like a messenger of God. He didn't come to show us the way. He is God coming all the way to us. If you set that aside, if you neglect that, you're rejecting God. You know the phrase, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it is a duck. There's no trick there. I, was, I tried to think of some clever way to turn it around, but that would defeat the purpose. If Jesus has the authority of God, the power of God, and the nature of God, then we must conclude He is... You didn't sound very confident of that. If Jesus has the authority, nature, and power of God, then He is... Thank you. Jesus is God. But that alone might not be enough to convince someone to listen to Him. Because it could just be an interesting factoid. Oh, neat. He's God. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a life to live that is completely unaffected by who or what God is. In the Gospels, we read about a time when Jesus took some of his disciples and led them to a solitary place and showed them who he really was, the transfiguration. He revealed his glory to Peter and James and John, Moses and Elijah standing there with him, speaking to him. And at the conclusion of that stunning revelation, they hear a voice from heaven saying the words of Mark chapter 9, verse 7, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. What I love about that story is we see that actually Peter was starting to ramble. Peter, overwhelmed and confused, is like, um, um, well, let's go make some tents, guys. Let's make tents for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. It's a good thing you brought us up here. And, and the voice says, listen, Peter. You know, calm down. Stop telling us what you think needs to be done. And listen to my son. And what he goes on to say after that, what Jesus goes on to say that needs to be listened to, is quite telling. He speaks of his suffering, he speaks of his death, and he speaks of his coming glory. Jesus being God is not just a historical or theological nugget for you to store away as something cool to know. The fact that he is God is amazing, but even more amazing is what that God does. It is this same Jesus who speaks words of comfort and salvation, who tells of how he suffered for your sake, how he defeats sin and death to give you hope and life. To the struggling Hebrew Christians in the first century and to you today, whatever it is that tempts you, whatever it is that threatens you, whatever would pull you away from Christ, listen instead to the one who knows your pain, the one who has made a path through suffering. Listen to him first and last. As we're about to sing. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. If none of our efforts remain, if none of our wisdom lasts, that's as it should be. Glory be to Christ. Let us listen to him. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given through Jesus Christ. It is a word that we can become too familiar with. 
It is a word that we can too easily confuse with the wisdom of others or the wisdom of our own hearts. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would see the uniqueness, the greatness, the distinctiveness of Jesus Christ. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be empowered to let other things go. To close our ears, to stop up the voices of those that would, would speak over Christ. That would tempt us away. That would replace worldly wisdom with his. Because his words alone are words of life. Words of salvation. The words of the one with the authority to tell us what to do. The power to control our circumstances. And the nature of God himself revealed to us. We thank you for Christ. In his name we pray.